boy blubber. Run for it! After them, boy blubber. Once again, this is the Code Red Net Podcast. I'm Thrasher. I'm Chicken Man. All right, and today we're talking about uh, two brand new superhero movies, uh, Amazing Spider-Man and Dark Knight Rises. Uh, we both saw Dark Knight Rises, but you haven't seen Amazing Spider-Man yet, right? No, I was told to skip it, actually. Yeah. Who could that have been? And that actually, for the listeners at home, was me. I did tell Chicken Man here to skip uh, Amazing Spider-Man, and I would tell... All of you, the exact same thing. I did not like the movie at all. No. You actually did write that it was worse than Spider-Man Three. Yeah, actually, did I wrote. You statement or what? What did I, you say? I do. I actually I put on Facebook that it, that this movie made Spider-Man Three look like Citizen Kane. <laughs> That's and, right. Um, I didn't. I mean, I, I was being a little bit facetious, I guess. I mean, I was kind of exaggerating. But I did think it was a pretty bad movie overall. And there's a lot of it. It's not necessarily, my problems with it weren't necessarily, like, in terms of style. Like, I had an easy time understanding it. It made sense. I just didn't like the way they took the character of Spider-Man and put him in this movie. The way they the way they made him look in this movie was a bit weird to me. Okay. Especially, um, like, the... Uh, oh, no, go ahead. You, oh. No, you go ahead. Okay. Um, I didn't like the way the the new Spider-Man uh, is portrayed. It's not necessarily even the actor's fault. I don't think... I think that guy's name is Andrew Garfield. It's not necessarily his... Um, it's not necessarily his fault. He does a, a good enough job with the script and what he's given. It's just that um, his character is portrayed in a way... Um, and this is something we can talk about with you know, with the way uh, superheroes get canonized and the different betrayals or whatever with uh, their characters. But the way he's done is so totally different from uh, the Spider-Man mythos or, like, the Spider-Man that I'm used to that it really uh, turned me off and I didn't really enjoy it. I, I, I told you earlier, he comes off as more of a hipster than a, than a loser in this movie, and I've always, I've always gotten used to Spider-Man. I've always liked Spider-Man being a total nerd, you know, a total dweeb that has, that has a hard time fitting in high school. And then the way that works with him being a superhero, I always really like that dynamic, the way it goes back and forth between them. Right. As far as, you know, canon go for Spider-Man, I don't think there's any one, uh, any alternate story that doesn't have him as a nerd in high school. Right. Because that's so central to, his, to the character. That's what I've always liked about him, as opposed to Batman. You know, Batman. Batman is very um, rich and well-to-do and older, and Spider-Man has a different kind of dynamic going because he's younger, he's still growing up, and he's in high school. You know, that's a totally different thing from being a millionaire playboy. That's about mm-hmm. probably as far away as you can get, actually. And that was always his appeal to me. And then they kind of take that away. In the Amazing Spider-Man, he's he wears, you know, like like Nike skateboarding shoes and he's got a little skateboard that he rides around actually that kind of becomes a plot point is that he's such a skateboarder and he just it's the way that he carries himself 
I don't buy that he's like this big social outcast. I mean, I think the original Spider-Man movie got it a lot better because you had Tobey Maguire, who's not, like, I'm not saying Tobey Maguire is ugly or something, you know what I mean? But he at least got a little bit of the awkwardness that Peter Parker, I think, should have, rather mm-hmm. than the, the uh, and I always made this joke about it, even when I saw the trailers for Amazing Spider-Man, it always just seemed odd to me that someone who was as, uh, as, as handsome, I guess, as Andrew Garfield is, and who's apparently dating Emma Stone, would have such a hard time or would have such problems in high school and would hate it so much. I mean, I can't imagine it would be very hard for him to be, to get along, you know. I mean, I, you know, not, I was not a, like a big jock in high school either, but I mean, I mean, that didn't happen to me. I always thought I was a nerd too, but I mean, he's not, he's like, he's tall and he's Andrew Goffer, he's like not at all what you would picture a nerd kind of being. It just didn't make sense to me. You, you say he is rather tall. He, he's he's tall and he's got this big goofy hair and like I just don't buy him as being a, a nerd. It just doesn't doesn't work. And if that's a major part, supposed to be a major part of the movie, it, I don't. It just came off as really really fake to me. So you're saying they did or did not portray him as a nerd? They or... they, they kind of went both ways about it. I mean, they kind of put him up as being like this hipster, but at the same time, it's like nobody likes him. Like you know what I mean? Because like. He walks down the hall and people ignore him, and then uh, that Flash character still beats him up for no real reason whatsoever. I mean, like, there's not even, like, an explanation why he hates him. He just does. Like, he actually, his intro into the movie, Flash's intro into the movie, is him just beating up Peter Parker for no reason. You know what I mean? Like, just being a jerk to him, which I guess is part of it, but, I mean, we never even learn why. Or It was just kind of really done. And they weren't so, like, in terms of physical, like, look, they weren't so dissimilar where you'd be able to really pick up on those, you know, like, nerd jock tropes. They they mm-hmm. didn't really look that much different from each other at all, so I, I couldn't buy it. Like, he wasn't much bigger than he was, he wasn't cooler, I just, it just doesn't. In comparing it to the first of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies, yeah. would you say it's unambiguously worse? Yes. I would. Okay. I would definitely. There's there's a lot of things that I missed from the original. I one of my favorite things about the original was that there was a sense of um, discovery about the whole thing, and it was mm-hmm. you know him trying to find his powers and how to use them responsibly and kind of struggling with it. That was one of my favorite things about it, especially seeing him try to figure out how to like web swing. And there was a a good joy about that kind of... And it was a, a fairly lengthy part of the movie with him just trying to come to grips with it. And this one, this movie's a, a, about like a half hour or maybe 45 minutes longer than that other Spider-Man movie. And it, it, it's, he gets his powers fairly quickly. And it's about a half an hour into it, he gets his powers. And it's, he just gets them all at once and he knows how to use them. It's like it's like, it's like he doesn't even have control over them. Like There's a scene where he, after he gets bitten by the radioactive spider... He's lying on a on a bench in a subway train, and some uh, drunk puts a beer bottle on his on his forehead for whatever reason I don't know why, and he and it wakes him up and he just jumps up and beats all of them up, swinging around the poles and like hanging from the top of the subway, and he does it so automatically it's like he doesn't have any control over it, and I don't think that works dramatically that well because it looks like he's not even in control of it at all. And there's just no 
struggle over trying to figure out how to use his powers or anything at all. He just has them right away. It's like the spider bit him, and he just had these powers within him automatically. And I don't think that makes sense either dramatically or realistically. It's just it just doesn't work. I mean, and even in like um, even in terms of the acting, I didn't think the acting was that good either. The only one that I thought was at all natural was Emma Stone. I thought she was pretty good. But I mean, I think she maybe she was just charming in a, in a general sense. You know, you just find her very attractive no matter what. So maybe she's but I mean, the, but her her interactions with uh, Andrew Garfield as Peter Parker were kind of awkward, and not in the way that I would say would be good because Peter Parker's awkward. It just didn't seem like they had any chemistry at all. They just kind of talked around each other. And I, don't, I, I you know I don't know if that compares. I don't know how much chemistry you say Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst had when they were in the first Spider-Man. I'm not sure. I'm not a big fan of Kirsten Dunst, so I don't think she's like actress. So. Yeah, but uh, you know my kind of my impression of the of Amazing Spider-Man is kind of it kind of as a metaphor for it at that scene. There's a scene where he is chasing the guy who he suspects is his father's his grandfather, uh, his killer, Uncle Ben or the uncle. Yeah, uh, he's chasing this guy who he thinks killed him, and he falls through a rooftop and he falls down into a wrestling ring. That's like a lucha libre uh, style ring, and that's where he gets the idea for. He's a poster that looks like the Spider-Man mask. That's where he gets the idea for it. And, uh, you know, in the original movie, like, he he joins up, he tries to be a pro wrestler to win money and trying to impress uh, the girls, or Mary Jane specifically. And I thought, you know, like, that was actually a good thing. You, you see him try to figure out his powers, and he has to wrestle the Macho Man, literally. And, um, which is always, that was definitely my favorite scene in that in that movie. And in this one, instead of seeing, like, a really good, fun fight sequence with him and Macho Man or another wrestler or whoever, all you do is you just get him looking at, like, a poster in this room. And then he goes home and types on his computer, and all of a sudden he has a Spider-Man costume. It's like, it's just, every, you know, it's like the lazy way out of, of doing anything interesting rather than, you know, just having it dialogue-based and stuff like that. So that, to me, is kind of in a nutshell, what I thought of Amazing Spider-Man. It's just missed opportunity, and it's just, I just did not like that movie at all. So, do you imagine a sequel of that coming? There might be a sequel, but I'm, I'm sure that there'll be a different director and writer. It oh. might be the same Spider-Man, maybe, but it definitely will be, um, it'll have a different tone, I think. Um, uh, has Spider-Man gone the way of the Hulk with a new actor each movie? It might be. I mean, they might cast somebody else. The guy who played Spider-Man was a little bit old. I think I read somewhere that he was like 28. You know, so you get like... But he looked like he was in high school a little bit. Maybe a little bit too old, but not too much. It wasn't like, too exaggerated. It wasn't like Twilight, where like everyone in high school looks like they're, you know, late 20s and all modeled. So, I mean, like, that came out before Batman, so, I mean, my reaction to it might have been different if I had seen that first before Batman, maybe, because Batman came out and kind of blew it out of the water, I think. What do you think? We're talking well, about Night Rises. Yes. Well, of course, can't compare it to the new Amazing Spider-Man, but I feel like this was a worthy successor to The Dark Knight, as good as that was. I mean, where would you, if you had to, to list the movies, 
Which ones do you like the best? Which ones do you like the least? Which would you put that's out of the Chris Nolan? Out of the Chris Nolan ones. Which one do you think was the best one? I would rank them as Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises and then Batman Begins. And so even though Batman Begins, I feel, is maybe the weakest of the three, it's still a great movie. It was. It was a good movie. I'd actually, I would probably put that as number two on my list. I'd probably put Batman Begins. I like Batman Begins uh, quite a bit. The only thing I don't like is Katie Holmes acting, I, I think, was really bad. But I would probably put Dark Knight first, and then Batman Begins, and then Dark Knight Rises. And again, like you said, though, I mean, that's kind of an arbitrary list because they're all pretty good, pretty good movies. What did you like about Dark Knight Rises in particular? I guess I've been debating how far we can extrapolate it as a social commentary, but I definitely feel like it's more than just an action movie. I mean, see, with Dark Knight, you really had these really interesting moral undertones, um, especially with, like, the blowing up of the fairies, if you remember that. And with Dark Knight Rises, I feel like the theme was, oh, really about the heroicism of Bruce Wayne and having to overcome all of the things presented to him. I mean, he's too old. He's not physically capable of being Batman anymore. And well, I, I don't. I hope we're not going to spoil this for anyone. <laughs> like, understand, we probably should not listen to this and then go see the movie. But you know, where he pretty much has his back broken by Bane and is thrown into a pit, and. Uh, it's very interesting what Bane says about ha how you have to have some hope to really be in despair. And so it really does seem like quite a hopeless situation where he's got his back broken, he has to climb out of this hole, or else Gotham's going to blow up. And so I guess that real s struggle to be the Nietzschean Oberman, Bruce Wayne, was really, I think, the most interesting part of the movie. I mean, especially in comparison to Spider-Man, in comparison to Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, you see him, he, d he doesn't really want to be Spider-Man. He would rather just be a normal person, have a normal life. He wants to be Peter Parker. Whereas, you know, Katie Holmes does say, you know, this, your mask is Bruce Wayne. Batman is, you know, his true, his true face, in a way. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. you're definitely yeah. right about you're definitely right about that. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, um, you mentioned that uh, it's more than an action movie, which is true. I've always, from studying film theory, I've always believed that every movie has a political subtext to it, no matter what. Mm -hmm. Because one of the one of the some of the essays I read talk about how a movie is made. It's not it's not made in a vacuum, right? So. No matter what, wherever that movie's made, it's going to have an ideology attached to it because it was made within a social or economic situation. And mm -hmm. even if it's not like a, even if it's not a, uh, say a directly political movie like something Oliver Stone would make or something like that, it's going to have politics and current events, you know, inside of it, no matter what. So I think definitely, and Dark Knight definitely has. Um, more not just politics but moral issues as well that I think are are, um, are fairly contemporary especially with 
I was talking to a friend of mine about about the WikiLeaks situation, and I see a lot of that in this movie, especially with the idea of, um, you know, how much information should we hide from the public for their safety, and should they know the truth and what the moral or what the uh, social implications of that are being. And I see that with the WikiLeaks situation, and then in the same movie, I see that with the what they call the Dent Act, right? Mm-hmm. Whether you know the people should know the truth. I think, I think um, Gordon, uh, he in the movie he struggled with. He was gonna write that. Remember, he had that speech that he was gonna show or read, but he put it away. He decided it was better not to tell the public what really happened for their own benefit. And in the movie, that seems to be what the movie implies is that that's what we should we should be able to hide that kind of information because then they, they say crime's down you know everything seems to be going very well as long as no one knows anything i think that was that's what i got from the beginning of the movie yeah it does have this really straussian idea of the noble lie i guess for strauss that was religion where he didn't wasn't religious himself but believed something like that was important for keeping civilization intact. And he says it's very, very contemporary, and people have interpreted it in different ways, such as in The Dark Knight, where Batman creates this real crazy, <laughs> crazily intrusive <laughs> surveillance system. Some saw that as being kind of a defense of... The Patriot Act. Patriot right? Act, yeah. yeah. And some say no, because, well, Batman is acting, he's a non-state actor, but it's, I don't know if that issue can really be resolved, whether some have argued, well, Batman is really propping up the state in this situation, whereas I feel like I would argue he's kind of picking up where they have failed, where, I mean, it's it seems pretty clear that the police themselves are, seem to be incompetent, or else. If they weren't, why would you even need a superhero? Right. I would agree with that idea that all movies have some kind of political undertone. Some are more explicit than others. Right. I think I think like these Batman movies are fairly explicit. Like in Dark Knight, I always thought that. Remember, he kidnaps that. Uh, not kidnaps. Batman goes to Japan or was it China? I can't remember. He goes there. Hong Kong. Hong Kong. That's right. And he goes to um, grab that guy, that banker that works for the mob and take him back to Gotham City so they could prosecute him and because the Chinese wouldn't extradite him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I always thought that was like, like I just saw that and I just thought, oh, extraordinary rendition. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like you can mm-hmm. go in there and take him, you know? And I, it seemed like that movie kind of was supporting that too, you know, because that, that was still during the Iraq kind of war years. It was kind of winding down at that point, but it seemed to me that a lot of that was, tucked into that movie too and I got the same thing from Inception as well that there was a lot of um, kind of like a, a counter-terrorism like kind of working out the moral problems with fighting that kind of war I kind of got that from a lot of Christopher Nolan's movies actually right I, is there a need for some kind of sovereign who can arbitrarily make decisions and bypass um, established laws. Right, right. I mean, yeah, that's absolutely right. Okay, so about this movie, Dark Knight Rises, we talked about the um, the plot of it, and one of the things that 
I've always noticed about a lot of Christopher Nolan's movies is if if you look into the the minute details of the plot, like how things happen, they can kind of fall apart if you look closely enough. That there are sometimes quite gaping holes and in, in logically in what happened that realistically speaking would be impossible or almost impossible to do. And I I, I contend that that doesn't really have that much of a problem. I've heard that from a lot of people have problems with that. I don't really think it's that big of a deal because it's such an action movie that and you can kind of just you can skate by problems like that because we understand that it's a movie. And I think in The Dark Knight it moves so fast that you don't really have time to analyze those problems until you've seen it like three or four times that they don't pop up right away. Um, and I, I mean like that Dark Knight Rises compared to a lot of movies, has so much action in it and so much stuff going on, it could easily be like three movies for anyone else. I mean, you could really stretch those those major plot points out into like three or four movies, because I read an essay that said that Dark Knight Rises... I read a negative review of the Dark, of Dark Knight that said that it's continuous climax. Like, that movie has like five or six climaxes to it. And I thought yeah. about that, and it's like, yeah, you could really make that like two or three movies out of that movie. But no one really crams everything in there, and it's wall-to-wall, you know, action and major, you know, plot events happening all the time that you could easily make multiple movies. And so I think when you have that kind of, when you have that much crammed in there, it goes by really fast, so you don't have time to think, well, you know, could Bane really have done that, or could how did Batman get back to <laughs> Gotham City, for instance, or whatever? It in terms of drama, it doesn't really matter that much because you're still so entertained by what else is going on. Right. I I don't see it as a negative thing. I think it really works in well, Nolan's scheme. And these things I'm more willing to overlook as far as you know, suspending disbelief. I, I think it works more than see my, my review of um, the Justin Timberlake movie In Time, where the gaping holes are so large as to really distract one from what's happening in the movie. Right. I think that maybe it is more of the case in Dark Knight Rises than the other Batman movies, but or other Chris Nolan movies. But I think it still worked. Yeah, I think I one think, of the one of the great things about it is that the rest of the movie is so motivated by realism in terms of like. The, the look of the city or like Batman's suit or his behavior or his cars or whatever that that makes up for it you know what I mean that everything else is so realistically presented that you can have somewhat fantastic things happening and you can will buy them because everything else is motivated so realistically you know mm-hmm. what I mean like Batman if you compare say Batman the Batmobile now, which they don't even ever call the Batmobile, it's just a tank that he drives around. If you compare that with, say, um, like Batman Forever or like the older Batman movies, the difference is night and day. I mean, the old Batman movies, they're extremely dressed up and, and theatricalized, you know, like with big wings. And they, it's, I have a hard time believing that those things could really drive down the street too well because they don't look like they corner very well, you know, or whatever. Yeah, but they were this new one is extremely long. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't think the maneuvering capabilities of those would be very good. But this new one, everything that that car can do, 
probably can be done really in real life. Maybe not quite with quite as much flair, but probably more or less could be done. I mean, it's plausible. I mean, I don't know if the technology exists to have a tank that can do jet-propelled jumps, (laughs) but it's presented in such a way that this seems plausible of the near future, or it doesn't seem sci-fi in that sense. No. No, not at all. So one of the interesting things that I read a, a blog with a review of this movie, Dark Knight Rises, and they mentioned that dramatically it's, it's a bit weaker than the other two and that it kind of suffers because it has to escalate so much. So if you look at the Dark, if you look at Dark Knight and the events of that movie were escalated to such an extent that there was major consequences for, you know, like their the fight between Batman and the Joker, that in this movie, the consequence, the bar has been raised so high that really, literally, the whole city could be destroyed and everyone in it killed, that some of the drama is lost because it's too broad instead of being too individual. Um, they said that, this essay, and I don't remember who wrote it, but that in The Dark Knight Rises, or Dark Knight, it's stronger because Batman, like, say, Rachel, Batman's friend or whatever, her life is on the line and she gets killed. And that's more of a personal tragedy for Batman than, say, 10,000 people in the city. But that doesn't have the same consequences as that one. And I'm wondering what you think of that. Yeah, I I can totally feel that. Where, like, the part where Bane leaves Bruce Wayne to sit in this jail and watch the events on TV, it feels like well, he's been a recluse for eight years. It doesn't really seem like it's like, okay, Gotham's his city, but really why? It's just he was born there. And outside of Alfred, it seems like there's nobody he really has a personal relationship with outside of Alfred. And so it doesn't seem like he's losing that much in terms of, like, people. It almost seems like a pride thing, like, this is my city, and I defend it but right. it didn't feel like much more than that was at stake for Batman personally. Right. I think I think that's true. And I think when you have movies like that that have major climaxes that involve a mass number of people or like a big goal, I think the best movies will always have, like when you read about genre theory, there's always a, um, a romantic subplot tied to a bigger event. So not only are you accomplishing some kind of job like saving the world, you're also saving someone you care about. And that that makes it easier for people watching it to identify with it because there's more of a personal level involved. You know what I mean? It's hard to imagine trying to save the world, but it's not as hard to imagine saving one person. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So there's going to be an individual level there that makes it easier to, to understand. And I think on there's a little bit of it in Dark Knight Rises, but in Dark Knight it was much better integrated that there was not only uh, Batman had the moral obligation or what he felt was his moral obligation to defend the city, but he also had to try to save people that he cared about. And that made it stronger dramatically than this one. Right. Yeah, it's easy to get pretty impersonal with a large number of people whom you don't know. Right. Okay. Yeah. What is, okay, so compared to taking Dark Knight Rises, we compared it to the other Nolan Batman movies. How would you, what would you think about comparing it to, say, the other, like that whole 
Nolan series as a whole compared to other versions of Batman that we've seen on screen? Well, let's say second to Nolan is probably Tim Burton, which going back to them, they they seem like all right movies, but it just doesn't seem like there's really any comparison, especially no comparison with something like Batman and Robin. Right. Uh, I think I think one of the things that that is totally different about it is, is the humor of it, with the exception of the first Batman, which is pretty serious type stuff. Um, I think I think all the other Batman movies after that have a, a lot more humor than than the Christopher Nolan series. There is some humor in his movies, like some kind of dialogue, but there's a, there's a sense of goofiness in the older ones with the Tim Burton and then. Tim Burton, and then it was um, uh, Joel Schumacher who did Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. There's a way bigger sense of goofiness and way more fantasy uh, in those movies than in Christopher Nolan's. And sometimes I kind of miss it in a way because I do. I kind of grew up on on those Tim Burton type movies, so I, I've always kind of liked my superheroes a little goofier, a little more colorful. But I understand and I I like the way that that he has done it to make it different and make it his own. That being Christopher Nolan. Yeah, I think one of the things that I find really interesting about Batman as a character is just just the real wide spectrum in which he has been presented. It's weird when you have something like the Adam West Batman TV series compared to the seriousness of the Christian Bale Batman. Right. You couldn't see Christian Bale punching a shark. No, I think. <laughs> or running down the street with the bomb. It's weird to me, like we talk about canonization and, and how things uh, take form. I think, you know, anytime we could, it's hard for an, on an individual level to say this is the Batman, this is the way he should be, because that's going to vary, uh, not only depending on who you are as a person, like your, any of the things that make up your identity, it also will depend on your experiences, too, and when you were born. So, for me, Batman has always been that kind of Tim Burton, kind of lighthearted kind of Batman, and kind of colorful and cartoony. And it, it took me a little while to adjust and appreciate what Christopher Nolan did, because it was so different from what I had seen. So, I think, on like in terms of canonization, it's going to be on an individual level. So, I think, critically, if someone writes a review about... Uh, some of these Batman movies and says they don't fit what they think the character should be. It should be noted that that's their idea of what the character is. And as you said, it's very uh, changeable. There's so many different versions of Batman that everyone's going to have a different idea about what the character should be. I find it that I like having these different versions of Batman side by side. That It doesn't have to be one thing because like you were mentioning, I I do like the goofiness of Batman. It's fun to have the goofy Batman, but I also enjoy the serious Batman that you'll see in, you know, in the Nolan movies or in the more recent video games with Arkham right. City and Arkham Asylum. Batman has this real fearful character. So I, I kind of like this, that you can have this wide spectrum, that he can be what people want to be. I don't see why others have to exclude this other type of Batman that they don't prefer. Right. I think one of the things, too, is 
you're gonna I think well the question I guess that I have is what what the form do you think the next Batman movie will take because there'll be another one clearly not necessarily I'm not saying like plot related to these Nolan movies but clearly it, it makes money so someone else is going to make a new Batman movie it might start over it might go in a different direction and I'm curious about what direction that's going to what direction it's going to take I think it's going to go back to a little bit more lighthearted than these um just because from what I've seen from movie series and characters that endure over time, there's always a pushback against what just happened. And, you know, so it always kind of bounces back and forth. I think James Bond's a good example of something where it'll it'll be one way for a while, and then when someone, say, a new Bond jumps in, it'll be a bounce back against what just happened. So take, for instance, like Pierce Brosnan in Die Another Day, which is a pretty goofy budget you know kind of movie and then you get Casino Royale which is very different and way grittier than the last one and I think the same thing's going to happen here it's going to go back to something a little bit lighter than the Christopher Nolan series was that's my yeah I guess yeah you can really see that in the successive bonds where you know Timothy Dalton is definitely not as goofy as Roger Moore is. And, you know, it's like with Daniel Craig pushing back against Pierce Brosnan. Oh, as far as Batman goes, I have some difficulty seeing it go too much back towards the previous lighthearted films just because I mean, people think of Batman as Robin as one of the worst movies ever, which I don't think it was, but after the popularity of the Nolan films, I guess I have. I think if it did go in a new direction, it would not be that drastic of a change. Right. I think, yeah, I think if anything, it'll be a little bit lighter, but not too much. I mean, and I don't even, I mean, if you want to, maybe we can just take a guess here, but who do you think would be a good Batman, then? I mean, who do you think would be, if we had to guess, who would be a good, not necessarily who's going to get it, but who we think would be a good fit? I'd like to see him go a more gritty British route, so I'd say Jason Statham. Jason like Statham. He'll headbutt everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah, I could. I mean, I could kind of. I, you know, one of the things that I like about Batman, like you, like we said, is that it changes over time and everyone has a different spin on it. I would. I don't think it's going to happen, but I would like to see someone make a new Batman movie that is radically different from anything else. But, like, maybe even, like you said, a British route or something. You know what I mean? Like, just do something different with it that would be interesting. It won't happen because it would be too much of a gamble, I think, you know, in terms of making money. Like, some people would not like it because it wouldn't be a safe bet. But I would really like to see something completely different. But I don't Mm -hmm. think that'll happen. No. That's the trouble, I think, with, you know, big blockbusters is that, not a lot of them are very daring at all. No, I, I'd like to say that Nolan is more innovative than most large in making most large films. Right. I think you. I think you see that in in the difference between Batman or Batman Begins and the other two. I think if you watch Batman Begins, Batman Begins is very conventional in terms of being like a a, a blockbuster movie, and and works fairly typically. 
And then I think once that was successful, they kind of let him have his way, which is kind of generally how it goes in Hollywood in general. They hire you, and they make you work on something, and you kind of prove yourself. And if you and you make a fairly normal movie, and if they like it, then after that you are given somewhat free reign to do whatever you like. And I think with the, with Batman, he kind of played it safe with Batman Begins, and then with Dark Knight, took a much bigger chance and changed it quite a bit. I mean, I, I, that's my opinion. I think I think Batman Begins is pretty a pretty typical movie compared to the others. So are we going to have to wait until? the second Batman movie after this to see something truly outrageous? Um, it would depend who's doing it, but pro- you're probably right. I think when Christopher Nolan did Batman Begins, he was still working his way up the ladder a little bit. He had done, like, um, you know, Memento, which was a smaller budget movie than, like, Batman was. I think he was still kind of proving himself, so he was getting to that point. If it was a a big name director, somebody, I don't know, you know, somebody with a bigger name, there might be more freedom. But I think there's still, like you said, there'd be a little bit more of a pressure to be conventional and normal and safe rather than taking a chance. Because Nolan's movies, Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, for blockbusters, are quite, you know, different. Especially in Inception too. If we even extend it to his other movies. Inception is a big gamble of a movie for such a big, expensive movie. It's quite unconventional compared to the rest of the stuff that comes out of the summer, that came out that summer. So I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think there's going to be something fairly safe made, and then maybe the second time around there'll be something different. Like even if you look at Tim Burton movies, that's kind of the case. Like Batman, the original from '89, is a pretty radical movie in a way because it was kind of it kind of jumpstarted that kind of blockbuster type of movie. But if you look at Batman and Batman Returns, they're quite different from each other. Batman's pretty conventional, and Batman Returns is way more specifically Tim Burton than the other one was. So that might be the case. I don't know. But as far as as far as um, what do you think of Batman Forever? I'm curious what your thoughts on Batman Forever are. Because that's a, it's not as um, weird as Batman and Robin is, but no. it's, but it's definitely way lighter and way different from any of the other than say Christopher Nolan's movies or Tim Burton's. Well, I know at the time I did like Batman Forever <laughs> when it came out, right? And I still think it's an all right movie. It's I mean the the villains are pretty colorful and that's you know it's interesting to compare them to like Nolan's type of character in that Nolan does not go like specific or explicitly like, sci-fi with his villains like like we said Bane we don't know if he has any chemical performance enhancers where in Batman Forever well I guess you don't have the sci-fi characters there either, but But, they are kind of goofy. But in Batman and Robin, you do see Bane. Bane is part of Batman and Robin. Mm -hmm. And the differences between those two characters, the difference between that character and Christopher Nolan is vast. It's a completely different character. In Batman and Robin, he's um, pretty much mute. He just grunts, really. Yeah. And he's basically just a 
uh, a tool that like Poison Ivy and, and uh, Mr. Freeze use to just tool, you know he's a blunt force and they just use them to beat people up and and move walls and in in uh, this Christopher Nolan movie he has a brain for one and then you know he's intelligent and does plan things and does that so the differences between those two are are quite quite vast and uh, I don't know Batman Forever to me. I think one of the big differences you can see is is in the level of acting, you know, because in Batman Forever, the one of the things I like about Batman Forever is the look of Gotham City in it. Mm-hmm. Those movies, the staging of those movies, which is how they dress the sets and stuff, is I really like it because there's a lot of work that I can see going into it, and it's very colorful and very dressed out. But in Christopher Nolan's movies, like we've said, in keeping with his realistic kind of tone to it, they're not. I mean, it's pretty much just like a regular, ordinary city. Mm-hmm. And in Batman Forever, there's a lot of neon and a lot of big um, Germanic statues and stuff like that. So there's a far more of an emphasis placed on staging in, in those older movies than in the newer movies. And the acting kind of measures up to that. So you have these fantastic sets. So you have actors that are way over the top. If you watch Batman Forever again... Tommy Lee Jones and um, the Riddler, which is Jim Carrey, are so over the top. It's almost unbelievable. They scream during so much of that movie, too. It's um, it's quite interesting how different the, the acting is in those two movies, with the exception of Christian Bale's voice in the new ones, which is pretty pretty out there. But what do you what do you think about that? What do you think about his voice? Do you think it's... That's always been a contentious issue. Like, like is his voice too much? Or, because I can of, I can live with it, but yeah, when people try to replicate it, it, it does seem kind of it does <laughs> comedic. Yeah, when you see right. YouTube videos of people imitating him, like at, in line at the bank or something, and he does that, you know, this little Batman voice, and you see it in a different situation, and you can see that it's actually quite quite ridiculous. But if you look at the old Batman movies, they do that too. Like uh, in the Tim Burton ones, uh, Michael Keaton, he drops his voice quite a bit yeah. when he's doing yeah, Batman. I, I, Not to the level that um, that Christian Bale does, but it's there. And so does Val Kilmer. I yeah, I remember the first time Val Kilmer as Batman and Chris O'Donnell as Robin team up. It just did seem kind of goofy how he drops his voice to Robin. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, what's funny is, like, in Batman and Robin with um, George Clooney as Batman, he does not do that at all. His voice is the same. In fact, he's just George Clooney. I mean, he has the same mannerisms as George Clooney. It's just George Clooney in a Batman suit. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's one of the things I've noticed now with George Clooney is George Clooney as Bruce Wayne, he's not some person who really still struggles with, you know, the death of his parents. He's kind of moved beyond that, and he's kind of this wiser figure and uh, advising Dick Grayson on his life and just calm. Yeah, well, it's funny because um, I read a Wikipedia page about that, the last Batman Trevor and Batman Robin, and, and they had this quote from the director that said, when he was making the movie, one of the th- models he had was that Batman should get over it. You know what I mean? So, and you can see that in the movies that it's clear, like, especially in Batman and Robin, 
that it's like Batman is over it, he's done, and he moves on. You know what I mean? And I think that extends not only to just the characters, but also to like the look of the movie. You know, it's not brooding and serious. It's pretty lighthearted and goofy. And it, it, Christopher Nolan obviously has an opposite philosophy. Even Tim Burton had a different philosophy about that. Yeah, I guess I'd say I prefer Nolan over the other ones, but it's not like I wish the other ones hadn't happened. They're, right. they're definitely an interesting take. I mean, a lot of people say Batman Forever isn't just like the worst Batman movie, but people say it's one of the worst movies ever made, which to me means they haven't watched a lot of movies. But, I mean, it, it, no doubt it's bad. I kind of I feel like I'm the only one in the world who likes it in a way because I... I think it, it's funny. It makes me laugh. Um, and we've talked about this before, not only together, but I mean, like, on the blog, on the levels of nostalgia, it's hard sometimes to separate yourself from things you grew up with or from... It's hard to separate aesthetic objects like a movie or a painting or something, or music especially. Music one that really cues memories. But it's hard to separate those things from personal experience and from the circumstances of your life. So, for me, it's hard for me to hate Batman and Robin because it came out when I was, I don't know, eight or nine, you know, maybe ten. And, you know, you're very impressionable at that age. So, I wasn't critically aware of it. So, I thought it was just fun and it was Batman and it was everything I expected from it. And uh, so, it's hard for me to say it's the worst movie ever or even the worst Batman movie ever because some part of me is still invested in it from when I was a little kid. I don't know if that's the same for you or not. Well, I, I do remember thinking it was hilarious when I was, <laughs> was that age. And I think we can objectively say it's not one of the worst movies ever. And I, I would be comfortable in saying it's, well, I don't know, depends on what you think of Adam West. But I would, out of Tim Burton and Chris Nolan and Batman Forever and Batman uh, and Robin, I would be comfortable saying Batman and Robin was the least strong of these films. Yeah. Um, depending, based on my preferences of Batman. Uh, I don't, should have said this earlier, but as far as the spectrum goes, I think it has to be somewhat polar. I, I don't know if I would like to see it in, in between where it's very serious, but like a very serious situation or plot with fairly goofy of villains or Batman doing goofy things like, well, George Clooney pulls out the bat credit card. <laughs> I don't know how much of the rest of the film I could take in a serious light with things like that happening. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's always been kind of like goofy. Like if you remember Batman and uh, Batman Returns, there's a part that always gets me because there's Batman playing because uh, the Penguin's running for office and he has been lying, you know, obviously. And he... Uh, he says something to Batman public, and Batman must have recorded it. And so he's giving this penguin's giving this speech, and Batman somehow hacks into the PA and plays a record of, of this of this whatever penguin was saying, where he's trashing the citizens of Gotham, and he's playing them along. And uh, Batman plays it, and then they show Batman in the Batcave next to the record, and he scratches it like it was a like he's a DJ, <laughs> and it makes that little record scratch sound, and. Mm-hmm. and and it's just I, would, I just I just can't believe like what 
Like, you know what I mean? Like, I can't understand it. Like, it's just, I don't know if I, I think it's funny, but I don't know if it ruins the movie or not or whatever, but I know a lot of people have problems with that kind of goofiness. And like you said, the, the credit card thing's always pretty, pretty weird. I think one of the things people say about the 60s Batman is that it's deliberately campy and stupid. And um, I'm not sure, and people don't say that about Batman and Robin, they just say it's a bad movie. I'm not sure how how serious Batman and Robin was. I think a lot of it was pretty deliberate and pretty purposeful. Yeah. Yeah, at least goofy. Looking at interviews with George Clooney and whoever, they said, yeah, we we didn't set out to make a serious movie, and that this movie was made for the purpose of selling toys. Yes. Very poetic, and uh, one of the one thing I always find very funny about Batman and Robin is like it's it's so goofy and like yeah you're right it's like they try to sell toys. If you could you could see through that movie and you could see the level of merchandising that's going on. It's almost like the movie's an ancillary product to the overall package of selling Batman and Robin in toys and you know. In toys or board games or video games or whatever, you can see it's kind of like this goofy movie that only serves to sell other things. And that is the opposite of Christopher Nolan again, because his movies, I know there's toys for Dark Knight and there's all that kind of stuff, but it's also, because it's a bit more of an adult movie, there's less of a focus on selling toys and stuff like that to it. And I don't think that movie, those movies would would do well for toys. I haven't seen any like the toys for Dark Knight, but I don't imagine they're too complicated. I remember when Batman and Robin came out and there were a thousand toys and they were all, I mean like just unbelievable amount of toys that came out with that movie. And there was a really bad video game too. I don't know if you've ever played it or seen it, but it's basically like Grand Theft Batman. You, you kind of drive around town in the Batmobile and it's really bad, but it's funny. It's kind of funny in a weird way like the movie, but... There's YouTube videos. I mean, if you want to YouTube it, it's interesting. All right, so we compared all these Batman movies together. Do you think there's any comparison between... I mean, if if we could say which we prefer, do you like like Spider-Man or Batman, or do you find room for both of them? Well, I'd say growing up, these are probably my two favorite characters. Um, I remember being pretty excited that... I was able to obtain, you can like find some images of it on the internet, but there was a crossover with Spider-Man and Batman, even though they were from different publishers, where Spider-Man fought the Joker and Batman fought Carnage. And it was, it was a pretty cool comic. So, as I say, those were my two favorite superheroes growing up. Yeah. Um, I think I preferred Spider-Man because he just had cool powers. It would be cool just swinging around the neighborhood or the city, yeah. whatever. And uh, uh, I guess Batman seemed somewhat more esoteric, that he has all these characters that I wasn't really familiar with, and Spider-Man just seemed more accessible and friendly, I guess. Yeah. But I guess after the Nolan movie. Like right, and I, after these you know most recent movies, I find myself more drawn to the character of Bruce Wayne and Batman, especially as a philosophic thing. Still waiting for Spider-Man and philosophy to come out. Well, and as far as the video games go, they Batman has had some 
think with Batman and video game, I think, first of all, superhero games, I was used to being really bad forever. I think only until, like, PS1, I think Spider-Man, the first one, I think Spider-Man games were better for a longer time than Batman was. Batman didn't have a good game, really, until um, until Arkham City, Arkham Asylum, I think was probably the first good Batman game, first really good Batman game. And I think Spider-Man had the lead on him for a while. Yeah, I don't really remember anything for Batman between Sega Genesis and Xbox 360. No, and there's, there's a good reason for that. There, there really isn't it. There was a Batman, it's called Batman Vengeance, which was pretty decent, that came out for PS2 and all those other systems at that time. That was pretty good. There's a few arcade games. A Batman Forever arcade game I have strange memories of that I think that it was good. Maybe it's not that good anymore, but I remember it being fun. But yeah, Batman was not, his games were not good and not very, in fact, there's some that are absolutely awful. There's a couple. But Spider-Man had some bad games too. I remember there's the Spider-Man cartoon series had a game for Genesis that I, someone gave me for free a couple of years ago and I played it and it's horrible. It's, it's a bad game. But I think you and I said that the first Spider-Man game for PS1, to me, was the first like time I played a superhero game, and I felt like that someone finally got it. You know, someone finally did it right. Yeah, that's a very good game, actually. Yeah, and same with um, like Spider-Man for PS1, for PS2, for the the movie was pretty good for the time. But when Spider-Man 2 came out and they had the game for PS2, I think that was really what set the standard for a while. And that was a really good game, too. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like Spider-Man was built for free roaming. Yeah. I guess it took a while for to figure out Grand Theft Auto and then tie Spider-Man to it. Mm-hmm. It was one of those times where it was actually a perfect match. And then Batman... Batman, I think, I think the uh, Arkham Asylum wasn't quite as free roaming or as expansive... Well, Arkham City seems to me to be really, to be like that, like, kind of reminds me of Spider-Man 2 a lot, where there's a lot more freedom to travel around. And those are very strongly, those are really well-written games, too. It shows that games are getting a bit more complicated like that. And it's good to see that it's a well-written game that isn't forced to be very linear. I think it used to be that a lot of times games would be, the better written they were, the more, and by better written I mean they were more dramatically fulfilling that they had to be more uh, linear because you had to try to tell that story. And I think Arkham, Asi- Arkham City and Arkham Asylum are both well-written, but they also give you freedoms and that you can tell that they're well-written games, not just well-written movies that are pasted onto games. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that is about everything for us. I don't know unless you got anything else to anything else you want to bring up. I think we covered well the current going-ons of Spider-Man and Batman yeah, fairly well. All right. So that is it for the Code Net podcast, episode number four. Um, again, you can check out the podcast. They are at crnpodcast.podbean.com. We have our blog, of course, the main website, the hub. It's coderednet.blogspot.com. We have Facebook, facebook.com slash coderednet. We have Twitter. Uh, and what is that? What is our Twitter handle? Chicken man. At Code Redness. That is correct. And that is everything for us. Thank you for listening.
Spider-Man, Spider-Man does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches feet just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Get the f out of here. Don't you How long do you want to make this podcast? Mm, half hour. Because your speedy clack, clack, clacks. Man. But, like, Roger Moore was, like, he seemed, like, upper crusty. Yeah, he plays, like, the villain in Spice Oil. And we have Titter, uh, Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> we have Titter. Oh. Lewis, give me that sweet bun! These websites are all in French. It's not helping me. Maybe Ticketmaster won't be such a dick lead in Canada yet. I think we're still recording. Yep. All right. You can keep all this stuff if you want.